from Kirkco Media. What you gonna do about it? Welcome to Politics, Meet Me in the Middle. I'm Bill Curtis. Joining me in the middle today, as usual, is Pulitzer Prize-winning author, historian, and worldwide lecturer, Ed Larson. How you doing, Ed? Great to see you again. In this episode, we welcome the highly respected UCLA constitutional law professor, Eugene Volokh. He brings a knowledge and perspective that's hard to argue with. Welcome, Eugene. It's an honor to have you. Very much my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Firstly, Ed, tell us a little about 1789 and the struggle to ratify the Constitution and what led our way to having a Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights was not in the original Constitution. That's why there are amendments. And it wasn't in there for an interesting reason. It's not that it wasn't raised. Many of the earlier colonial charters had Bill of Rights and people treasured them greatly. But the Federalists, led by James Madison and and George Washington, didn't want a Bill of Rights. And it's unclear all the reasons they didn't want one. But they thought that this is a state matter and the state constitutions cover it. And what's the federal government going to do? You also have others like Alexander Hamilton who just didn't want to limit the federal government. But there was this strong drive within the convention, led by people like George Mason and Elderberg Jerry, Benjamin Franklin, who said, wait wait, we need to protect our liberties against this large new federal government we're creating. That's the one that caught fire. Finally, John Hancock, when ratification came in Massachusetts, and it was a very close call where they'd ratified, he broke the deadlock and said, we'll only ratify if we include with it the recommendation that a Bill of Rights is added. Well, actually, let's talk about the First Amendment for just a second, because it's so far-reaching. It has so many different aspects to it. I'm going to give a quick read. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and petition the government for a redress of grievances. Wow, that that's a mouthful and that's a, that covers a whole lot of issues, doesn't it? It certainly does. And it's important people never forget how it begins. It says Congress shall make no law. And what they were trying to do was to say, we already have the states. They already have their Bill of Rights. This means that Congress isn't going to mess around in these issues. This is just limiting Congress. It's not limiting the states. And on that grounds, the First Amendment sailed through. Just for a second, let's jump to semi-modern times here and talk about a point where you'd have to debate whether or not there was a free speech philosophy in this country at all. And you have to jump over to McCarthyism during the Cold War. And you really can't say that there was a, a thought toward supporting free speech during those times. Oh, I think I think the opposite. I think if you look at at, at America in the 1950s, there was a very broad freedom of speech. The but it was riskier. It was riskier you could you could be blackballed, you could be fired, you could be jailed for your opinions. So a few people were jailed for uh, communist advocacy, chiefly for organizing a communist party. I think that was wrong, but uh, that was a very much the exception. There certainly were people who were fired for that, just like today people are being fired for uh, things that uh, either are racist, Who they say, voted for in the last election? Uh, uh, well, I don't know of people who were fired based on their votes in the 1950s. Certainly there were people who were fired based on the sense that they were communists or sympathetic to communists, just like today 
day there are people who are fired for because they're seen as white supremacists or racists and sympathetic with that. Mm-hmm. But really, it was about very outlier speech. Some of the examples you gave, like being fired from your private job for who you voted for or what you said, that's not directly protected by the uh, the First Amendment because that's a private action. And that still happens. But that happens in the 50s. People, who, people got fired from their jobs for supporting Stevenson for president instead of Eisenhower. That sort of stuff happened. Uh, but it was it was done privately. And unless there's a law that prevents it, it can still be done privately. First of all, I should say free speech could mean more than just the First Amendment. You could say that free speech includes freedom from being fired from your job, although then it becomes just more complicated because sometimes employers may say, look, we ha- we've hired you for a public-facing position where you're supposed to be bringing more business to us. Maybe you're our spokesman or you're a high-profile writer, and uh, you say things that alienate enough of our customers. We don't want you speaking on our behalf. Uh, so uh, I, I'm, I'm referring more to circumstances where the government can levy a penalty on you. Right. So I do think that uh, um, the 1950s were somewhat unusual in that people were actually being prosecuted for uh, organizing the Communist Party to to teach communist doctrine. That was the Dennis case, I think. Or even an anti-war doctrine. Uh, But uh, I don't know of any prosecutions for anti-war speech during the 1950s, even during the 1940s, as opposed to the 19-teens under Wilson. Even during during World War II, generally speaking, uh, people who were uh, even expressed sympathy for the Axis cause, they might have been. Uh, they might have uh, faced a lot of social and professional repercussions, but not legal persecutions. Uh, I, uh, certainly, there are no Supreme Court cases in the 1950s uh, that uphold uh, uh, criminal prosecutions for anti-war uh, speech, simply. Uh, so uh, I think there were certainly excesses during uh, the 1950s, uh, in particular with people kind of lumping everybody in with communists like who they thought was was too far left, just like today, uh, people are being accused of white supremacism, uh, even though they're not at all white supremacists, but because that's sort of a convenient political label. And there were a few prosecutions. But, but again, that the, was a mid The question the is, does the First Amendment give you the right to say what you want, where you want, to whom you want? Ed? It gives you the right to do it versus government prosecution, unless there's a clear and present danger and it leads directly to crime and and is is understood to do that. But it doesn't protect you against private discrimination, your employer laying you off or something like that. Let's table the employer laying you off and focus really on uh, circumstances where uh, government is considering controls in today's environment. I can't help but ask you, what should Zuckerberg's responsibility be today for Facebook? Or what should Twitter's responsibility be to actually monitor what's being said on their pipeline and be responsible for some kind of censorship? The legal rule, generally speaking, is that private companies can control what is said and what is done on their property. Now, you could imagine Congress passing a statute that says... uh, Facebook must carry every user, everything that users post. Facebook may not restrict what's being posted. That's kind of like the statutory rules that Congress has imposed on phone companies, so-called common carrier obligations. Just Congress has never enacted such a statute. A lot of common, ordinary people walking around there think, well, the First Amendment protects um, freedom of speech for everyone and anywhere, and nobody can limit it. 
And that's not true. Internet service and content providers are not liable as publishers of material posted by other people. So that's what allows Facebook to say, somebody posts this message, somebody else says, this is libelous, this is uh, uh, invades my privacy, this does whatever. Facebook could then say, look, we're going to... We're going to keep our hands off of this. We're not going to delete it just because you demand it. That's not reason enough for, uh, uh, for us to delete it. If you want to sue somebody, don't sue us. Sue the person who posted it. So if, the- if, I, if I am the conduit by which a criminal message gets broadcast, why am I not a party to that well, crime? See, that's a great question to ask because what a litigation is testing is whether how much teeth this has, how far this goes. Because if you could still show in court that in some ways the conduit is the message and the conduit has... Or the message would have no teeth without the... Then you might, you could bring the litigation and say that this doesn't protect them. But again, that by having this in there... It matters because the court's going to have to dance around this before getting to the other. And by the way, most of the talk about things uh, that people don't like on the Internet doesn't have to do with criminal mm-hmm. things. It has to do with things that may be defamatory, libelous, maybe invading privacy and the like. But when it comes to crimes, federal criminal statutes still apply to these service providers. Usually those federal criminal statutes require knowledge or recklessness on the part of the defendant. But, for example, when it comes to uh, child federal bans on child pornography, if Facebook learns that somebody's posted child pornography onto its site, then once they learn that, they have a legal duty under federal criminal law to remove it. And my understanding is they're actually quite happy to go along with that, not just for legal reasons, but for ethical reasons as well. However, the statute does bar the enforcement of state criminal laws. And I think part of the concern was, you know, federal criminal laws are a very particular set of laws. Uh, they're interpreted by federal courts. They have, generally speaking, are Can you give us an example ways. of where they're at odds? Well, so I'll give you an example having to do with uh, uh, what some people call revenge porn. Let's say uh, John uh, and Jane are lovers. Uh, uh, John uh, makes a video of them having sex. Then they break up, and then John posts that video either to spite Jane or because some because Jane's gotten famous, somebody paid him money, or just because he gets his jollies that way. Under under some states' laws, that is illegal, and John can be prosecuted. Now, could a website? that allows John to post this be prosecuted? The answer is not under state laws. But if there were a federal criminal statute that prohibited this kind of... uh, um, uh, How about a local newspaper? I'm sorry. So local newspaper doing what? Local newspaper publishing libelous, allegedly defamatory material? Something that would be permitted on a federal level but not permitted on a state level. So newspapers generally don't do things that people might seriously think of as criminal. Uh, but they do sometimes do things that people might think of as civilly actionable, like libel people, allegedly, or publish things that libel people. And uh, if a newspaper puts on its website, because the statute only applies to things on the Internet, if a newspaper puts something on its website, let's say a comment uh, from uh, a, a comment... An editorial. Well, a, a newspaper is still liable for things that it itself... Uh, creates. But if it, for example, uh, allows people to post comments and then somebody says to the newspaper, oh, wait a minute, this comment defames me, the newspaper can and often does say to the person, look, you go sue the commenter 
Maybe you can even get information from us about the identity of the commenter, but you sue him. Don't sue us because we are immune from the state law libel lawsuit. The reason why you'd want to make this difference that Eugene is describing, and it's, it's really very logical if you think about it, is that something on the Internet automatically crosses all state lines. There's, there's no geographical boundary for it. But if it's a published local newspaper... It's only published in a particular state, and it only goes across state lines if somebody carries it across. Okay, so let's give you a somewhat more self-serving example here. Let's say, oh, I don't know, there's a political podcast nationwide, and we invite on some guests, and they say a few things that we don't know whether or not they're true or not. Are we obligated to do research and fact-check everything that's being said? Are we libelous well, based mostly on, on what mostly, our guests say? Mostly on point. Let's To keep it to your example, if you're raising an issue of defamation and you have editing capabilities in all your podcasts, they, they look at the facts and you have editing capability and you do, do it and you're defaming somebody, I think you'd run a great risk under state. Uh, defamation statutes. So I, I would uh, I would differ on that. I think one of the things that Section 230 does is it would make you, assuming you distribute your stuff on the internet, which it sounds like you do, exclusively on the internet, it would make you not liable for things that are published on your on your program by somebody else. So if you right. for if you for example, are you uh, the somebody else in this case? Yes, in this case that would okay. be so. I would be liable. But you wouldn't be liable. Now, if you were saying, if you then took what I told, uh, what I told you and then put it in your own words and, and said, yes, I endorse that, I think this, this, and that, then you could be liable for what you yourself said. But you couldn't be liable for what uh, uh, somebody else posted, even if you have actually, you have a working relationship with a person. Usually, of course, these lawsuits involve somebody being sued for something that some total stranger posts on the website in some comment. But even if it's somebody you've invited, you're still not liable for that. And there's actually a case on the subject uh, uh, involving America Online. Remember them? Mm -hmm. They used to be big. Uh, And they had a columnist. And the AOL for the rest of us. Exactly. And AOL had a columnist, I believe it was the Drudge Report, actually. And there was a lawsuit against AOL for what was posted on this Drudge Report page on AOL. And remember, Drudge Report wasn't just any old random user. They had actually sort of special access. Uh, uh, so they were provided in a special way by AOL. And the court said, nope, that's uh, AOL is immune under Section 230 there. I, I think I'm, I'm going to have to cut us off right now because we got to take a break. Um, we'll be back in, in 30 seconds, I promise. It will be On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. Welcome back to Politics Meet Me in the Middle. I'm Bill Curtis. And again, I'm joined by my co-host, Pulitzer Prize-winning author, historian, and lecturer, Ed Larson. And our guest, of course, is the UCLA constitutional law professor, Eugene Volick. Jumping ahead to our our Facebook discussion and some, uh, let's call them the difference between obligation and decency and more of an obligation to society, I'd be interested in both of your thoughts on what should be Facebook's obligation to censor dangerous uh, messages 
uh, inflammatory messages. Uh, I'm not talking about libel here. I'm talking about uh, something where you explain to someone how to make a bomb, promote them to go into a public place, and uh, recruit someone into Al-Qaeda through your Facebook page. To what extent should we be looking toward a pipeline like Facebook to create technology that eliminates that problem? Well, so first of all, if you're looking to, for technology that eliminates any problem, then reduces the then problem. you're you're going to be disappointed. And what's more, the danger is when the demands are set so high, it ends up being covering a lot more in practice than what you're trying to cover. If they really want to eliminate it, I suppose they could say, you you can't use the words ISIS or Al-Qaeda. Well, that might make it a little bit easier to eliminate things, although even that won't succeed, but that'll be vastly So do you think they should? Uh, So uh, if you're asking they should as a moral matter, as an ethical matter? I'm asking your opinion. No. I think on balance, I think... We're better off if there is if these services provide people with the ability to say all sorts of things. Much of it'll be bad. Much of it'll be good. I think it, but I think on balance, it's better that uh, uh, that it be allowed than have somebody with the power and the influence of one of those large companies um, uh, be able to block it. I think it may be different if it's if it were just a whole bunch of different places. It's right. If, if there are a bunch of different bookstores and one bookstore doesn't want to carry some things, other bookstores will. Uh, and th- I have to say, even if, let's say, Facebook blocks something, there's still lots of other ways to communicate it. But Facebook has so much influence and so much power that it seems to me that it would be better if they, even just as an ethical matter, took generally a hands-off approach, maybe with a very few exceptions like child pornography and the like. Uh, well, well, why don't? If you're going to make an exception at all, well, I'll, I'll then get to the... we have to talk about where the line is well, drawn. Well, I think one reason why we're pretty comfortable with exception for child pornography is even if even if Facebook kind of overdoes things a little bit, the child pornography and things that neighbor child pornography are of so little relevance to public debate that we don't much worry about it making a mistake. On the other hand, if Publishing we Publishing call- schools that are vulnerable to a wild, crazy person going in with a, with a gun and a bump stock to well, take students out. That Isn't could be, that just as that bad? That could be tremendously valuable, actually. If somebody were to write about, look at all of the security vulnerabilities in our school. In fact, I'll tell you how easy it would have been for somebody to go into this school. I, I'll, just, I'll, just, I'll, I'll show you on the map where they could have gone. Is that dangerous? Yes, it's dangerous. Is it valuable? Yes, it's valuable. Well, it's valuable if sent to the people who can do something about it. No. It's dangerous if it's sent to people who don't understand that they're reading something that if they follow, they're doing humanity a terrible injustice. So it's funny you use the word sent. That's the language of basically one-to-one communications back when we used to send things by by mail or maybe make a phone call or send an email. Uh, uh, But uh, when something is posted to the world at large, it's accessible to everybody. And in fact, uh, the kind of explanation of security uh, weaknesses is something that actually could be quite valuable when the public as a whole gets it, because maybe maybe the government isn't paying close attention. Maybe the experts aren't really focusing on this. Uh, and maybe only when, when voters sort of see it and say, wow, why aren't these security holes plugged? Maybe only then things will happen. I'll give you an example, because I wrote an what article. What about giving away secrets? 
Well, certain kinds of giving away of secrets has been tremendously valuable. Remember the Pentagon Papers case where the government tried to get an injunction against the New York Times and the Washington Post about publishing the, against publishing the Pentagon Papers. The rationale was these are government secrets. Now, and they still could, just to emphasize his point, they still could go after Daniel Ellsberg, who right. actually stole the secrets. So they could still go after him. It was just the, the Washington Post and the uh, New York Times were the conduits, and they said you can't get an advance. In advance, that would be a prior restraint. In advance, you can't stop them from doing it. Right. And also notice um, the way you frame things. You were, you were talking about things that were very dangerous because they may reveal security vulnerabilities. But you also use the word inflammatory. Well, there's lots of speech that's inflammatory in the sense that it inflames people's passions. Usually when inflammatory is used, it's like, oh, this speech is allegedly racist or religiously bigoted. Well, a lot of that speech is quite valuable. For example, speech sharply condemning certain religious groups uh, and certain religious beliefs. You know, some of it may be extremely unfair and uh, dangerous. Some of it, maybe even the same, may actually be quite valuable in exposing uh, dangers posed by what are, after all, important ideologies heck, like religion. Heck, you'd take Bill Maher off the air and- and you keep Richard Dawkins from publishing his books. Right. And I think both are very valuable in their own way, even if I don't agree with them. But let me give you an example of something that I that I saw that's, uh, um, uh, th- that's related to, to this question of security vulnerabilities. Um, there was a paper in the proceedings of a uh, conference of security researchers on how easy it was to fool, um, uh, to fool fingerprint locks. The authors of the paper essentially wanted, they thought that fingerprint locks, the locks that are supposedly sensitive to fingerprints are bunk. They wanted to debunk that. So they wrote a paper and they said, here's how we could do this, if I recall correctly, $20 and 20 minutes, how we can fool a fingerprint lock. Now, as it happens, it was published in the proceedings of, of, a, of a conference and maybe they didn't even really realize that it was going to be on the internet, but eventually it was posted to the internet. Um, now, does That's that... a good example. Right. Does that make it easier for people... To commit crimes? Yes. Does it also provide valuable information to the public about an important debate as to whether, in fact... Or should we change our security methods? It also does. It also does. So that's why... But if it said you should all go out and here's how you can fool the fingerprint scanners and you should all go out and do this, if it promoted a crime... So uh, the First Amendment rule is that even advocacy of crime is constitutionally protected unless it's advocacy that's intended to and likely to produce imminent lawless conduct. So not just at some point in the future engage in violent revolution, but go and burn down this building right now. We're standing in front of it. I want you to join me in burning it down. So generally speaking, such even advocacy of crime is constitutionally protected. But it's true. You asked me about about an ethical question, not a a legal question. Uh, So I suppose you could say, uh, well, let's just have Facebook and maybe I think Facebook may have similar rules saying, well, you can't advocate crime. So if somebody says, let's go and bomb a police station or let's go and punch a Nazi, well, that's advocacy of crime. Uh, And that's the line. You can imagine that. But then, of course, what's going to happen is people will say, I'm not telling you to go bomb a police station, but let me just tell you what horrible people police are. They're pigs. They're awful and the like. 
So then, of course, people will say, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. That's really functionally equivalent to advocacy because we know that that's what they're trying to get at. And that's the way that supposedly narrow restrictions, whether they're government imposed or privately imposed, end up turning into broader ones, that basically people evade these restrictions in various ways. And, and, and the people who back the restrictions say, well, we need to close that loophole, close the advocacy loophole. But that would only work by just removing the requirement of advocacy. Okay, so I know this is really hard for lawyers. But I'm going to ask you to talk to me for a minute about should rather than right. must well, right. or obligation. One thing I'd say about should is when it comes to somebody like Facebook, I imagine, I, uh, I think they act like a rational capitalistic company. Uh, Google would be the same way. They want to maximize their business. So if they they will adopt a rule that they think, you know, if 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 having pornography hurts their brand and ends up with less, or advocate or or allowing messages on that um, that tell people how to build an atomic bomb or how to um, do a um, do some sort of chemical weapons program. If that hurt them, they're probably going to make a decision to self-restrict. And in a way, Facebook does that too at a lower level, but they're considering that, I would believe, and I think they have a total right to do that, so they can put on any restrictions they choose to, but then you're going to get some of their you, people to move to a different... They're going to move to a different platform. Oh, of, of course. But having... A, a responsibility to society, an operation like Facebook and Twitter, you have to admit that they are so big and so powerful and, and such a loud platform that they should have a slightly different obligation to society, not from a legal perspective, but in fact more from... Uh, there's got to be at some point where we're well, talking what is right and what is wrong. Let me ask you this, because you brought up earlier, you brought up the McCarthy era, the 1950s. You brought up private blacklists. So let's say that Facebook and Twitter existed in the 1950s. And somebody said, you know, I think that Facebook should have an, uh, an ethical obligation to ban communist advocacy. Those communists... Uh, they're supporting the people who are killing our boys in Korea. Uh, we're in the Cold War with them. On top of that, communists, you know, I'm they're sure someone to... would say something like that. They're saying stuff like that today. Right. I'm going to give you an right. example in a minute. So would you endorse that? Would you, would you think that a Facebook and Twitter in the 1950s should have, as a matter of ethical responsibility, banned communist advocacy? And if so, where would you stop? Would you, I, what about I guess communist I feel sympathizers? That, that what about fellow travelers? Banning communist sympathizers is different than promoting a crime instructing people on how to hurt other people. Uh, I think it, I so, think there, so you, there should be an obligation. So you withdraw the inflammatory point. You don't want them to restrict merely inflammatory speech. You would draw the line at speech that advocates crime or that provides information how to commit a crime. And by the way, the communists were advocating crimes. They were advocating revolution. Revolution is both itself criminal and it also necessarily, especially communist revolutions, involved Crimes called murder, mass murder. And taking away private property. And taking away private property and vandalism so and sabotage and the like. given your rather wide um, award of rights to a Facebook or a Twitter, because you've just, you've just given them a pretty broad set of rights, uh, how about bias? Do you think that they should be able to uh, inject bias into the way? For, for example, this is meet me in the middle, so I, I have to quote both sides for a minute. Uh, Ted Cruz asked 
How is it that at real James Woods is currently being banned on Twitter, but at Jim Carrey is not? And that certainly would be a bias. How do you feel about that? You know, I don't know the particular details of what exactly James Woods was banned for and what Jim Carrey wasn't. But uh, um, I will say under current law, Twitter is perfectly free to impose viewpoint-based and content-based restrictions on what is said on the service. Now, there is the question, what if Congress were to say, look, we're going to mandate that Twitter and uh, uh, and uh, uh, Facebook, for example, essentially be what the law sometimes calls common carriers. They have to provide their services to everybody, and uh, uh, they can't refuse someone because they disagree with their messages. I don't think that would be a great idea because I think that uh, ultimately uh, I, I, don't, I think the government shouldn't be ordering businesses around this way unless there's a very strong reason. I don't see uh, the strength of that reason right now. Uh, but I think it might be constitutional. I would distinguish, though, and by the way, I should mention I have actually made this argument in my capacity as a lawyer for Google. So uh, there I wasn't just as, a, as an impartial academic. Uh, but I should say there's a difference between uh, what these platforms recommend and what these platforms host. So I think it would be actually violative of the First Amendment rights of Facebook, let's say, that says you have to equally recommend to your users all uh, all Facebook pages without regard to viewpoint. Because uh, Facebook, I think, has its own First Amendment rights to say we don't want to say we think you should you should view this. Uh, they may think that you shouldn't be viewing this. Uh, but if the requirement was simply to host, that is to say you simply have to provide access to your servers and the ability to subscribe on a viewpoint-neutral basis, that kind of statute might be constitutional. There's actually some uncertainty about that. So, but basically, if I've heard correctly today, Facebook should have virtually no obligation to society. Their obligation is to their shareholders. No, no, I actually think that Facebook should have an obligation to society. Uh, I, I think that it certainly makes sense for them to have an obligation primarily to their shareholders. But I think to the extent that corporations have some uh, some power to kind of do things that they think are in the interest of society broadly, and I think they're generally interested in doing, I think that the most valuable thing they could do is provide a very broad range of speech uh, and uh, resist public calls for, uh, for suppressing uh, inflammatory statements and the like. And that, and, that, and that for you is the service to society. Yeah, I think the service to society is it helps each one of us to express whatever we think is right. Give let me give you an example. the most despicable human beings right. on the planet a megaphone. Uh, yes, let me give you an example. Um, let's say that Facebook, or, or let, let's say that, uh, uh, yeah, so Facebook uh, um, uh, got a complaint saying, people are sending messages using your direct message feature to each other. Or some email company. People are using your, your services to send emails. And we think they're bad people and these are bad emails. Like, for example, maybe they're white supremacists and they're sending uh, emails helping organize their rallies or organizing their crimes. Uh, or they're communists and they're sending these bad messages. I think our reaction would be that the mail company, uh, uh, the, the, the email company should say, well, it's not actually up to us. It shouldn't be up to us 
to say, oh, we don't want your email because we think you're a bad person sending bad emails. And I'd I'd have to draw a a huge line of differentiation between the one-to-one, the private message and the public platform. But the question is why? If you're talking about free speech, as I think you were talking about earlier, free speech not just as a constitutional rule, but as a principle, as a value, as something that is valuable to society, uh, then it seems to me that the ability to speak in public um, is as valuable a thing as the ability to speak in private. Now, to be sure, the distinction is all, not always that sharp. Um, uh, you can use email using so-called list servers, and I've done that many times. I think many of your listeners have too, to communicate to hundreds or thousands of your fellow list server users. Conversely, often Twitter, you communicate to your readers, but many people have only a couple of hundred Twitter readers. I'm not sure there's that sharp a difference. But even if it is, why shouldn't the ability to speak to the public at large be something that people have, even when we think their views are bad, just as the ability to speak to individuals? It used to be, of course, before the Internet, that the only people who could speak to the public were rich people. Rich people are people who had the ear of rich people. There was this famous line that the freedom of the press belongs to him who owns one. The Internet, thankfully, removes that in considerable measure. That, that's really very good. Uh, rich people have always been able to speak publicly, but now poor people can too. So now the question is, should the people who run Google and Facebook and YouTube, uh, YouTube is actually run by Google and Twitter, whether they should now say, well, you can speak if you are rich, when it, you always speak with you're rich, but if you're poor, you can only speak if you don't say things that we think are really very bad for society. I'm not sure that that's the right approach. In fact, I suspect it wouldn't be. Well, Eugene Valak, I want to thank you for coming in here today. This has been absolutely spectacular. I hope you'll come in and visit us again. I would be delighted to. If someone wants to research you, read some of your writings, where's the best place for them to go? So I write a blog called The Volok Conspiracy. V as in Victor, O-L-O-K-H. And if you search for Volok Conspiracy, you'll find the blog that my brother and I started and actually many other law professors now participate in. It used to be at the Washington Post for several years, and now it's at Reason Magazine. So if you want, you can also go to reason.com slash Volok, and uh, you'll find our blog there with daily stuff, mostly about law, although sometimes jokes. Well, thank you, Eugene and Ed Larson. Always a pleasure. You certainly bring a kind of a knowledge and a sensibility to these discussions that I really appreciate. And thank all of you out there for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please help us by telling your friends. And of course, subscribe to Politics Meet Me in the Middle so you don't miss our next argument. And if you have time, please leave a review. It really matters to us. You can also check us out at kurtco.com, C-U-R-T-C-O.com. This episode of Meet Me in the Middle was recorded at Kurtco Media's Malibu Podcast Studios and was produced and edited by Mike Thomas. Audio engineering was by Michael Kennedy. And our theme music was composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. From Kurtco Media, media for your mind.